Hello, and welcome to this episode of Reading Between the Wines. I'm your hostess, Winona Glass, and I am here with the Psalm of the South, Keegan Moore. Hello. In this episode, we are going to discuss The Lost Vintage by Anne Ma. This is a historical fiction book that follows our present-day character set in 2015, Kate, who is sitting for her Master of Wine exam. And as part of that test, she goes back to her family's estate in Burgundy and helps them work the land and taste a lot of wine and meets with a lot of the uh, different winemakers there. Um, And in part of doing that, she uncovers a secret that the land has been holding for quite some time. And as we begin to uncover what's going on, we find a parallel story of Hélène. And Hélène was part of the Resistance in France during the Second World War. And so that part of the story takes place in like 1940 to 1944. So we have two very different characters that are kind of following the same trying to find themselves path, uh, I think we can say. But let's start with Kate. So Kate is setting for her Master of Wine exam. And according to the book in 2015, there were only like 300 of these in the world. That's accurate. Uh, As of right now, there's about 400, a little over 400 in the world. So it seems like a pretty hard test. It's, you know, not like being a doctor, but it's pretty (laughs) difficult. There are multiple stages you have to go through. And there's another character in this book, Walker, and it, Walker is sitting for another exam that's similar. Is that fair? So Walker's in restaurants. So most people in okay. the restaurant industry go for their master sommelier exam, which okay. is a little more service-oriented, mm. whereas the master of wine is more theoretical. There's a lot more writing, Okay. whereas with the master sommelier test, it's a lot of verbal Testing. And how many master sommeliers are there? Uh, around 270. Wow. So it's an even harder test to pass. It's pretty difficult. Yeah? Interesting. So Kate uh, is struggling. She's already failed this test twice. And if she fails this test again, she can never take it again. That seems a little extreme to me. but So there's a lot of pressure on her. So her coach, her mentor says, why don't you just go to Burgundy? Like, just take some time off. And she's like, I live in San Francisco. I have a job. Like what? And everything kind of falls into place. The restaurant that she's working for closes kind of unexpectedly. And now she's left with a little bit of time on her hands. And so she says, hey, it's harvest time in France. So maybe they could use my help. So she goes and visits her cousin, Nico, and his wife, who is actually her friend from college, Heather. And works with them during the harvest. And it seems to me that harvest is kind of a fun time in France. (laughs) Maybe from the outside looking in, it's like the most stressful time. All hands on deck. Everyone's working. Your fingernails are stained. It sounded like everything was stained. Like her clothes were (laughs) stained. Her feet were stained. Her hands. Yeah. Everything was covered in wine, which doesn't sound like a bad place, but I do know it's intense. But part of it seems to be like they have a pretty fun party at the end of it to oh, celebrate. Oh, yes, yes. They and definitely normal times, work hard and play hard. Yeah. You normally would take care of all your staff. Like a lot of it's temporary help. Sometimes it's people coming from outside the country to work. And yeah, they get fed well and obviously drink very well. And there's a big celebration at the end. It made me laugh when they said they were still cleaning up from it and they found like a peach tart in the closet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the sign of a good party, I guess, when you find oh, yeah. a peach tart in the closet. <laughs> um, and so 
as part of that she's there, um, Heather asks Kate if she will help her clean out the, the cave, their basement, I guess, or their cellar underneath the house um, because they... They, we find out that, that Heather and Nico have some big plans for the vineyard, that maybe it's in a little bit of financial distress, and in order to save it, they're trying to come up with some new ideas, and so they want to clean out the, the cave in order to make sure that they have what they need um, moving forward. And so a lot of it's just like random old stuff that you throw down in the basement, right? I mean, they've had this vineyard for well over 100 years, so there's a lot of stuff. But they start to unearth some things. We finally find a hidden cellar and get to go inside. And did you get, I know that you were concerned uh, when we did Pretty Things that they didn't describe the cellar enough. Did you get enough description of the cellar in this one? Oh, yes. There was a lot of uh, wine down there. I was shocked at how... She had to categorize yes. and list all the wine. And she talked about how there were just rows and rows and rows of it, well over a thousand bottles, multiple thousands of bottles down there. Um, I just couldn't envision how big that area was that no one knew it was there. Well, it was hidden. It was like, hidden well. She had to figure it out how to mm-hmm. get through uh-huh. and the, the furniture armoire. to get, yeah. Yes. And then it was just so interesting, the whole uncovering of that. And then to find out that there was a whole story behind that. And this is where we meet Ellen. Ellen is your typical teenager in the south of France. And she's going about her time. She's very much in this like intense competition with Rose uh, throughout school because only one of them can go and get the scholarship to the university, and that's not something that women did back then. They didn't go and have higher education, so this was a big deal to her. Um, we find out later that Rose is the one who ends up at the, with the scholarship, so she comes back and we're meeting Rose again in the ration lines. So the resistance or the occupation of France has taken full hold. There's rationing happening. Um, but Rose and Ellen have this friendship and this bond that they just really enjoy each other's company and they don't mind standing in long ration lines together because they talk about school and everything. And we find out that Rose has been kicked out of school and she's been kicked out of school because not anything that she did, but because we are at the point in the Holocaust story where Rose has three Jewish grandparents. So even though Rose's family is not Jewish, they go to Catholic church. Um, They even said that, that's what Ellen says, you know, I sit behind you in mass every week. And she said, but I have three Jewish grandparents. And so someone has determined that three Jewish grandparents is enough to make you Jewish. That was enough. It was really disheartening to, to read all of that, you know, to really read it firsthand. I haven't read a lot of historical fiction, so to really hear the Rose's account and her family's account, because her uncle was a, a doctor and had to close his practice and go into hiding, you know, their whole family was affected by this. So we, we learn more about how people were treated who not weren't even necessarily Jewish, but had come from Jewish descent, and she had to wear the star, and she had to have her papers. At one point, her cousin, who was part of the uh, military police, tells her, be careful who you're hanging out with, because, you know, they knew that, obviously, that Rose was Jewish, because she had the star of David on her lapel. Um, And that comes into play a little bit later in the story again. But her father, uh, Ellen's father, 
she finds out is helping hide people who are trying to uh, leave kind of an underground railroad, leave under the cover of darkness and get to the line of demarcation and to freedom. And it comes out that Madame, his wife, who is uh, Ellen's stepmom, so Ellen's mom died and his dad remarried and they have two sons together, Albert and Benoit. And it seems like Ellen is not necessarily as uh, compassionate as her husband is. She seems to be a little more hardcore um, in the French heritage and trying to keep that heritage alive with the circle of friends that she gets with and talks about um, everything French. Right. She was always in like the good social clubs and it was all about her appearance and the fine china. So then when her husband disappears and her husband disappears trying to get Rose's family Uh, across into the line of demarcation. And the reason that they had to go when it was unsafe was because Madame found out that they were there and she wanted them gone. She said she was going to turn them in to the Gestapo uh, herself if they didn't, if if her husband didn't get rid of them. Which again, not very compassionate. But I understand she was fearful. She was very afraid of everything. Very protective of her children. Of her children and of the vineyard itself too. But more from a status than from a like bottom of the heart. Yes. Sincere. It wasn't really empathy as much as it was. I want to keep my place. And so when her husband disappears, she just becomes distraught because she doesn't know how she's going to continue to keep them safe and fed and move on. She really wanted nothing to do with the vineyard. She just liked saying that she lived there, I think. Um, and so it really is Ellen who kind of becomes the matriarch of the family, even though she gets all the work and none of the credit, right? right. The madame really likes to put her back in her place. Well, she was also ended up being part of the resistance also. like <laughs> She did. And that was uh, part of what we find out, especially after her father disappears. And then she really realizes um, how much he, how involved he was with it. And she becomes kind of to do her own part and she wants to help as many people as she can. And she has several different roles within their little circuit. Um, But we follow that story along, but we'll go back to Rose for just a second. So she and Rose start to put together the Burgundy mixture and the Burgundy mixture is what they then call themselves the alchemist club because they are turning metal into gold because part of the vineyard is that they talk about the grapes as drops of gold. And so what is the Burgundy mixture and how does that help uh, the, the grapes in the vineyards? So a Burgundy mixture is copper sulfate with sodium carbonate. And I think when they're referring to drops of gold, it's actually a vineyard, La Gautour. So it's one of the most renowned ones. It's the bottle they end up searching for. Mm-hmm. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> it's like a real page turner there on the end. We're looking for this specific bottle, right? Yes. Uh, but the burgundy mixture essentially helps against disease in the vineyard. And because Burgundy is in continental climate, it's cooler, they have to deal with hail and frost. It's just essential. And as you can read from the book, like two high school graduates in the 1940s were making this mixture. So it's not anything terribly complicated, but it is, you know, chemistry. There are things that can inevitably go wrong. 
And but, they talk about that, how it burned through her dress and uh, different things. But obviously copper is a big part of that. And copper was a little hard to come by. So they were trying to buy it on the black market. And even today, <laughs> true. copper is a sought after metal. And yes. it's hard to mine and hard to find. And especially in wartime. Mm-hmm. And so well. they figured out a way then to preserve the grapes and to preserve the crop so that they could still make wine. And so they're, they kind of save the day, these two girls with you know, not even a college degree between them. Alchemist Club, saving the day for for their fellow vineyards in Burgundy. I love that they they came up with that. I love that they had that that connection there. Um, And so that's... I mean, they had to like sneak back into like the science lab and convince their old teacher like, yeah, we're innocent, I swear. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Just please look away for five seconds. Like, I need something. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and they did, and they so they were able to do it. And it's just interesting because the Burgundy mixture comes back into play later because when Ellen has um, hidden her diary and she doesn't want anybody to find it, she actually had coded it as part of the Burgundy mixture. So it was really interesting to see how important that was as a line throughout the story right. that they came back to it. Still used to this day. Yes, yes, which is amazing. One of the lines in uh, the book that I really enjoyed was it talked about um, the wine is asleep in the bottle, and when it is uncorked, it breathes and comes to life again. I hadn't thought about wine just kind of being asleep in the bottle until we talked to Kate, or until we read about Kate going into the hidden cave, and she's very careful with the bottles because she doesn't want to jostle them too much because she says it's bad for the wine. I had not heard that. I mean, I think about wine being transported from France to my little town, that why would it be so traumatic for her to pick up the bottle and look at the label? I mean, like she says, the wine is alive in the bottle, and so you can think of it as us or... Like a bear, mm-hmm. when you wake bear out of hibernation, mm-hmm. ah, <laughs> you don't want to shake it. But also, it's they're old. More importantly, mm-hmm. so you like an eighty-year-old grandmother. You wouldn't want to be like, "Hey, let's go." You know, <laughs> you have to be like, "Grandma, are you ready?" You uh-huh. know, like they're just they become very fragile. More chemistry stuff inside the bottle, but like things begin to break down. So you just don't want to do anything extraneous. You don't want to heat it. You don't want to jostle it. And I found it very funny, and I'm sure you did too, that there was a whole, we'll say intense conversation about whether you should decant or not decant. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, That one made me laugh because only because Jennifer then comes back later and is like, silly girl, that was not about decanting. (laughs) It was about they both love you. and But it was interesting that as a... uh, estate owner that Jean-Luc, who Kate had had a relationship with um, when she had been to Burgundy in her college days, that Jean-Luc was very adamant that decanting wasn't necessary. But Walker, who is more like you had mentioned on the hospitality side, on the restaurant side, was adamant that you should decant everything, especially older bottles that have a lot of sediment. Do you have a stance on decanting versus not decanting? Never. Uh, always in the middle, right? So there's a lot of factors that go into decanting. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, when we're decanting, most of the time we're aerating. Mm-hmm. Decanting is literally trying to like get the sediment out. 
which is necessary in old wines because parts of the wine will literally precipitate out and fall to the bottom, and mm. that's how you get sediment in the bottle. Uh, but a lot of old wines are delicate, mm-hmm. so you don't want to like necessarily jostle them and pour them into a decanter and then pour from the decanter into the glass. So it really does depend. I think on the restaurant side, a lot of people expect an expensive bottle of Burgundy or other expensive wines to be decanted. It's part of the show and part mm. of the tableside service. But yeah, ultimately, it's it's up to the drinker what you want to do with it. I, and, and to be on the safe side, don't decant. Mm-hmm. And if you pour it and you think it needs more air or you've got a lot of stuff in your glass, then you can always decant. Mm. Interesting. So to decant or not decant, it's up to you. It's Yes. <laughs> it's up to the drinker. Uh, so we're going back to the story. So, we, so Kate and um, Heather find Helen's journal, Ellen's journal. And so we learn more about Ellen, and we learn more about this time, and we learn more about the resistance, and we learn a lot about um, what was going on in all of the south of France and how close they were to losing everything. But after um, Madame's husband disappeared, then one of her friends from her French heritage group comes and has a little conversation with her. And then all of a sudden, the next day, Madame is off and doing other things. Life is suddenly better. Yes, she's bringing home ham, which they had been like, nibbling off of the skin of the potatoes, and now she's bringing home ham, which no one has had. Benoit has a birthday. No one's tasted cake in years, and here she is baking cakes for everybody. Um, So she became known around town as what they fondly called them, horizontal collaborators. Yes. (laughs) It's an interesting conversation piece, um, but that it was a, a huge kind of shame that was brought upon the family because of it. And it's part of the reason why no one wants to talk about any of the past and the vineyard's past is because they believe that there's this great shame brought upon the family. And Ellen's journal helps to everyone to understand that it maybe was a little different than they had anticipated. And so they had always thought that Ellen was the horizontal collaborator, but through her journal, we learned that she was not. Even when um, Madame would bring home all of these wonderful things to eat, she was steadfast in not partaking because she didn't want to be seen as someone who was... Even though she was in town. Mm -hmm. They were. She was kind of guilty by association. Exactly. Uh, much like Rose, you know, it really didn't matter. It just mattered who, what your parents were doing or your grandparents were doing. It didn't right. matter what you were doing. And so I felt it was unfortunate for her, and it was very, um, I felt bad for her that here she had sacrificed so much throughout the entire book, and people still f- thought the worst of her and how easy it was for people to, fe- to think the worst of you, not to think the best of you. And I think that plays out a lot uh, when we read some of her final journal entries when actually she was come and rounded up after the Americans had come and after the war was over, the Allies had done had arrived, and everybody shows up and they come to arrest her stepmom, her madame. And her madame, who was never, it was kind of a Cinderella story, she never was really fond of her stepdaughter, but she just kind of tolerated her. Right. And so we get to that point where all of a sudden now um, 
she's getting pulled out the door and she's like, oh no, but my sons, my, my sons, what's going to happen to them? And she's like, oh, and her, like she was a collaborator too. And she's like, what? Yeah. What are you talking Throw about? Throw your stepdaughter under the bus on your way out. Because honestly, all I could think about when I was reading that is like, literally, who is going to take care of your kids now? Because at least she had always. She would have. Yes. She loved those Continued boys. to take care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she was almost their mom. You know, I mean, she was feeding them and dressing them and taking them to school and to get them to, you know, all their different fun things to play with neighbors. So she really did kind of was there over, not overbearing, but was there, um, oversaw them, especially when Madame couldn't function. And then when she chose not to, she was functioning in a different capacity. (laughs) Um, So it was, it was just very interesting to me uh, that she kind of drug her out on the way. And so we find out then that Ellen is, taken through the streets, like her clothes are ripped off, stones are thrown at her, they paint her body, like she's just humiliated in every way, shape, or form. They shave her head, which is like the ultimate um, sign of humiliation in those days. And, uh, you know, just bless her heart, she... (laughs) It's like, I did all of this for y'all, and then all of you who are now casting stones is... I'm, I did this for you. It was reminiscent of like witch hunts. Yes, you know? it was like. Well, and it actually got blamed. It really, I, not to get religious, but it made me think of that part in the Bible when he said, when Jesus says, you know, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. And here, all these people who are full of sin, I was like throwing things at her that she knew a lot of them personally. Yes. And she had done nothing. We're helping Nazis, and she was like just try, trying to help people survive. Right, and she was really trying to keep to help with the resistance and to help take back over. Like everything that had happened was because of what she was working with them to do, delivering messages and risking her life. And so, in the last in journal entry, it sounds like she dies from a traumatic brain injury. Um, that she gets a concussion and she succumbs to that concussion as her final journal entry. Um, we then find out maybe that's not the case, that maybe what had happened is that she, uh, she sent a letter to her brothers and her brothers are telling them like, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm out, you know, I'm leaving France. I'm never coming back. I'm never going to talk to you guys again. I love you. I want you to always know that. And it's actually her madame, her stepmom, is the one who gave her her jewelry and said, like, go sell this and go do something. I don't want to see you again. I don't want to be associated with you. But I feel bad about almost getting you killed for something you didn't do and (laughs) kind of dragging you down with me. Because it was interesting. I don't know. They don't really go into it in the book. But, like, madame never gets any of the treatment that Ellen got. She didn't get her head shaved. She didn't get, you know, accosted by mobs of angry uh, Frenchmen. She just kind of shows back up at, in the story. So it was like, yeah, we don't know what happened there. Did was she a different kind of horizontal collaborator? She collaborated with the collaborators. <laughs> <laughs> How exactly did she get off easy? And that I think was a part of one of the most frustrating things for me with that character was that. She continued to do the wrong thing and got away with it. And very portrayed as like a very selfish, Mm -hmm. self-centered person. And yeah, there's, she makes it out in the end. Yes. But then we find out that uh, 
that she didn't die, that she actually does come back to America and ends up actually being not too far away from Kate. Atlanta's right down the road, turns out. Yes, she was at UC Davis when uh, Kate had been at UC Berkeley. So right there in the same state, of like of all the places that they could have gone, of all of the different, but I guess wine country, they're going to gravitate towards wine country. That's what what there's in their blood, right? But how frustrating to find out only after she's gone that she was so close this whole time and you could have had such an influential um, person in your life. Right down the road. Yes. And so I know we've jumped around on this, but there is this whole love story between uh, Luis. We have not brought up Luis and this whole love affair that she had with the wine as well. And so Luis is introduced as a character who's in love with Jean-Luc or supposedly in love with Jean-Luc. She's actually trying to find the lost vintage that uh, there's a rumor that obviously this, this wine still existed and that it was hidden somewhere. And so she coerces Walker into finding out um, what Kate's up to because Walker's another American living in France. You know, like, hey, come on, let's be expats together. Louise convinces Walker to be a male horizontal collaborator. (laughs) In the present day sense. To find this one bottle. Uh Uh-huh. Le Gautour, highly acclaimed. Yes. And it seems like it all kind of falls apart for Louise. And there is a relationship between Kate and Jean-Luc that had gone back to when Kate was much younger. And it is interesting because Kate has this like hesitation to go back, but it's not because of all of this stuff that we have uncovered. It's because of Jean-Luc, because she kind of left him jilted at the altar almost. Uh, He proposed to her. She's like, hey, I'm going to go back to San Francisco, tie up a few loose ends, and then I'm coming back. And then doesn't. (laughs) I can understand where she's coming from, though. It was ultimately, you know, do you want to be a housewife and sacrifice what you want to do with your career to be a vigneron's wife, Mm -hmm. which I'm not going to lie. I would say yes to such things. (laughs) Let's be real. I would love to date... uh, winemaker in Burgundy. Uh, but you could, I don't know, she just wanted to like go on her own path, but mm-hmm. she like never like tried to talk to him again. No. Never wanted to go home. No. I mean, we do, she, her mom is kind of distant, so yeah. like maybe that's part of the reason too, but. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. But. I'm out. It's one of the things about this book that was a little frustrating is that everything gets tied up with a pretty bow at the end of it. Perfectly. Uh-huh. We find out that. We all live happily ever after. Ellen was alive just down the road. We find out that um, Kate is going to marry Jean-Luc. Sorry, spoiler alert there. Uh, everything, like, it just, she, they decide they're, she passes her exam that she was studying for that we hear so much about through this whole thing. Uh, everything kind of falls into place at the end of the book. And it's one of those that it was great. It was a good read. I will say for this one, it was hard on an audio book because the way that this book was written is almost like a scene would get introduced from the backwards they would introduce the ending and then go back and talk about the beginning. So it was hard listening to this. I actually had the benefit of doing both the audio and the book. Same, and, actually. Yes. I had the same struggles. I couldn't figure out where the journal comes in. It's yes. just inserted, mm-hmm. which you can 
tell a little bit better when reading the physical book. Yes. So it's one of those things where um, having the book, I'm a huge audiobook fan, but I know that sometimes there are things that are lost whenever you're writing. And the audiobook, it was very difficult because I, I remember one instance, they were talking about being on the hike and they kind of started with the end of the conversation and then they went back to the beginning, and I was like, wait, what just happened? I listened to it several times, and it wasn't until I read it that I was like, oh, now this makes sense. So it was seeing those like gaps in the paragraph and, and whatnot that helped um, me to understand the book better when I read it versus the audiobook version of it. And you get the emojis. Yes. <laughs> and when you're translating the whatever... Sh- Ellen is trying to hide in the yes. burgundy mixture. Yes. Like that was good to see. It as was well. good to see. It was much better to look at it visually um, than to hear all those just like string of letters and random words yeah. that were that were put out there. Well, we've talked a lot about the book, and this is obviously one of the more expensive wines that we will have on this podcast. Yes. And so, Keegan, I think it's time that you pour the wine. And for our listeners, we're going to take a break, uh, and we'll be right back after our wine is poured. Welcome back. While you were gone, Keegan, you poured us something that looks fantastic. Yeah. How do you like that burgundy glass we're drinking out of today? It's quite gorgeous. I don't think I've ever drank out of anything that was this beautiful. And what did you tell me that was unique about this glass? Uh, burgundy glasses are wider, so there you can get more air, you can swirl around, you can get almost a whole bottle in here. Oh. Uh, but it's bringing more aromatics mm-hmm. because they're uh, not as expressive grapes. Mm. But as we've discussed before, Burgundy's mostly Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So we are drinking a Chardonnay today, a 2017 Comtesse de Cherisy, Bois de Blainy. Um, so this is a wine from Merceau, where our most of the book takes place. We are in the southern Côte de Beaune within Burgundy. Uh, the label is named in honor of the wife of the vigneron, uh, Laurent Martelet. And guess what his wife's name is? Um, Ellen. Ellen! So she we're drinking it. a wine, loosely, we'll just say for our podcast, based off of one of the characters in our book. Exactly. She runs the estate and he makes the wine. So how fun. Pretty close. Um, but Ellen was the granddaughter of a late countess, hence the name. So this is a little hamlet, mm. Blani, which is between, um, Merceau and Montrachet. And between those two, those are some of the most expensive white wines in the world. Wow. Montrachet does have, uh, more regard and esteem behind it, but Merceau is like a close second. So uh, I guess we could get into price while I'm on it. This um, retails for around $100. Most wines in this category are around $70 to $120 and up. Mm. That's on current release. That's not getting into... Like a 1942. Auctions. Yes, I'm sorry. Yes, if we were to to buy a bottle at auction of, of the Marceau from this region... Five digits, probably. Really? Montrachet, for sure. Merceau. Merceau has had a bad rap at some points. Honestly, Chablis has been more expensive than Merceau in the past. Mm-hmm. But today it's regarded as, like I said, 
pretty much second best to creme de la creme of Chardonnay and Burgundy. Um, so this is a 2017, which was a pretty darn good vintage. And Burgundy, not quite as awesome as 2014, um, but it's still where uh, they had a lot of cooler nights. So it's elevated acidity, which it's pretty high acidity normally, um, but it also allowed for ripeness. So it's got a lot of good fruit character as well. Am I tasting oak in there? There is some oak. It's part of the reason why some of these can get so expensive. Probably 50% new oak or more on this wine mm. for several years. And then it's bottle aged as well. Um, so we did a partial decant today. <laughs> We're playing into the whole do you decant or not. So Right. So we tried it before without decanting um, and we decided I decided to decant because I because it's know. beautiful it is beautiful it's a very it was good fun one. to try it both ways but it's definitely more expressive once it got a little more air it was very chatty <laughs> it's not screaming at us but it is certainly saying a lot of things uh, I got like bruised yellow apple uh, marzipan like a marzipan icing marshmallow I think is one of the first things I thought a little bit of burnt match Mm. which is kind of a technical thing of something, but I did get a hint of that along with Flint. It's got nice minerality. Uh, on the label, it's listed as 12.5% alcohol. It did seem a touch more than that to me, but I believe them. For all of our listeners, I would just like to point out, it smells like wine to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love all of the adjectives that Keegan uses, but I am not as a refined nose as she is, for yeah. sure. Crushed rocks. Yes. You could, that's some, you know, then you get up there into like Flint and what kind of rock and is it, when you said, is it a wet rock or a dry rock, you know? <laughs> I, I'm going back to marshmallows. I'm not, I don't. Yeah, is it a regular marshmallow? Is it a toasted marshmallow? I still smell wine. <laughs> I tried. I think it's beautiful. I will say, though, you have picked some amazing wines for us because any of, any of our listeners know that I'm a red wine drinker. The redder, the better. And, and we've had at least two or three white wines now that I have not I'm hated. working on our wine by wine. Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, proper is. temperature to drink this. Uh, it recommended 53 to 57 degrees Fahrenheit, which is around 12 to 14 degrees Celsius. And you could also drink this now. Like I said, we think it's delicious. Mm -hmm. um, and it also could age for a decade or more. Obviously, in the book, it can age for decades and decades and decades. If you put it in, in a cellar. In ideal conditions. Underneath your estate in France. Hidden behind an armoire. Yes. Through a, through a wall. Right, right. <laughs> but I don't intend to keep wine in a cellar like that. You're working on your collection, though. I don't want to hide it, though. I don't, I don't necessarily want to hide it and, you know, have it be moldy and what other words did they use to describe what it was when she found it? Oh, man. There were lots of adjectives to describe yeah. the cellar when there she first found it. some spider life action. And yes. <laughs> lots of four-legged friends in there. She's like, yeah. I just threw some poison in the corner, corner and prayed for the best. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but back to the producer, they only own 1.13 hectares, which is around, it's under three acres. Oh, wow. That's fairly small then, isn't it? Tiny. But that's kind of one of the many reasons why Burgundy's expensive 
because all the vineyards are chopped up. Like, and the most infamous ones, you could literally own like one row, and that's it. A couple rows in an infamous vineyard, and you're set. Wow. Um, but Merceau, um, like I said, they're they're kind of similar to Montrachet. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, experts that drink a lot of Burgundy can taste the difference in most of them. Uh, Merceau is a larger parish. Uh, only Jeffrey Chambertin and Bone have more land under vine, um, but there's lots of individual growers in Merceau. So there's over a hundred domains just within Merceau, wow. within Cote de Bone, within Burgundy. Holy cow! That's a very small area to have that many it's producers. It's pretty tiny, uh, but they've they've been doing some regeneration in the town center in the past years. Mm. If we can imagine traveling in the future to fun places, not just through our wine glass. <laughs> if any vineyard would like to host us, we would be more than willing to talk up your vineyard. I would love to go to Burgundy now or next year or every year between now and then. Um, a little bit of history for Burgundy itself. The earliest vineyards date back to first century AD. And that's when the Romans were conquering Gaul for all the history buffs out there. Um, the earliest literary evidence of wine dates from 312 AD. People were claiming property partly due to abandoned vineyards. Mm. Sad face. Wow. How could you abandon a vineyard? I don't know. You're probably like worrying about feeding yourself and yeah. uh, who knows in those, those pre-times. Um, so the monks, their viticulture began around 600 AD. They started acquiring vineyards on a large scale around 1300 and them being monks, they're very studious. They had the time to do it. They kept meticulous records. They were highly organizational, which kind of helped map out Burgundy to be what it is today. Hmm. Uh, Philip the Bold is uh, one of the infamous guys always mentioned when talking about Burgundy. He issued a decree in 1395 banning Gamay from being planted because it was not good enough. Mm. So that's another reason why it's mostly Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. And okay. Gamay's kind of been like put down and it's only in Beaujolais. Cast off. Cast it's off. Not good to, enough for to our the people. southern part. <laughs> uh, but uh, like a lot of places in the past, Merceau's history is closely linked to a church, uh, which ba- dates back to 1480. And it remains as a medieval fortress. It's pretty fun little touristy place to go while you're in Burgundy. Uh, Chateau, there is a Chateau de Merceau. Um, they, their history stretches back to the 11th century. And also Thomas Jefferson visited the area in 1787. Oh, wow. And he later uh, refers specifically to the goat door. So that infamous bottle they're looking for. Yes. That never gets found. It doesn't. Well, we do find out what happens to it. She did mention in her letter that she... That's how... Spoiler alert. Yes, that she That's took part of the them. reason how she made it to America, to California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she sold those coveted bottles, which was interesting that they found all these bottles and they kept saying like, "Oh, if only it had these two bottles, then it would have been a magnificent find instead of just an extraordinary find." <laughs> yeah. and like, wait, you found like four thousand bottles of wine, but only two bottles would have made it like really cool. <laughs> I mean, at that time, it was probably known the most infamous vineyard, but today, Le Perrier is generally regarded as the finest crew. Also, another side fun fact, there are no grand crews in Merceau, just premier crews, which is one step down. Oh. 
But as we've talked about, they're still pricey. (laughs) Yes, yes. You're saving some money on the classification, but not a whole lot. Interesting. And then the only other thing I wanted to mention, in case you can't get this specific bottle, uh, Bouchard Pear A. Fields is the largest landowner in the Cote d'Or, and they were founded in 1731. So they're pretty widely available. Um, There's a bunch of their wines on wine.com. Sue. So if you want to read more about what we're drinking and the glasses that we're drinking out of, head on over to our website at readingbetweenthewines.blog. Again, that's readingbetweenthewines.blog. We're going to continue this conversation, but we're going to do it exclusively for our Patreon subscribers and our Anchor.fm subscribers. So if you're not a subscriber and you want this additional content, you can go to our website. There's a link there to both our Patreon and our Anchor.fm website, and you can subscribe. You can subscribe for as little as $2 a month, or you can become one of our premier subscribers at $25 a month. We have lots of books and wines to cover, so we would appreciate anything and everything that you can do for us. So until the next time, always keep your glasses half full. Cheers! Cheers.